I was minding my business. You know you can bite someone's finger off easily. Can you really? Apparently, it, it's as strong as a carrot. Is it? The really? only reason you can't actually bite it off is because your brain's telling you, don't do that, you idiot, it's your finger. Why would I want to do that? You wouldn't, that's why your brain's stopping it. <laughs> Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey, kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger. Everybody. Hello, everyone. That's better. That feel, feels so, better to have you there. So you don't have a class. So yeah. I don't, there's not a class full of people in front of me. I've not just said that and thought, well, Michael, <laughs> I'm on my own. No. Uh, hello. And welcome back to the show. There's a couple of things we want to talk about. First of all, there is a book. Is that? Called Hey Kids Comics. About us? No. Uh, Alas, no. I feel that such a book would, <laughs> would sail off the shelves. Well, I'm sure there are some copyright rules about the name, you know. <laughs> yeah, but we don't own the copyright, unfortunately. <laughs> I think it's owned by somebody else. No, the book Hey Kids Comics is by Robert J. Kelly, host of the Fire and Water podcast and author of such fine websites like treasuryeditions.com, which I have ruled before. And I have read most. I'm halfway through it. Okay. I have read most of his book, Hair Kids Comics, which is a collection of articles and essays by comic book luminaries and fans talking about their obsession with comics, and it's it's very good. There's something in there that you can relate to if you are a comics fan. It is one of those things where you thought, I could have written an article for this. Yeah. My story is fascinating <laughs> in that way that it's interesting to me. But, well, all know. the way that there's more than one. Yes, there is that. So, Robert's book is Hair Kids Comics. It's coming out in September, which is this month. Yeah. It's published by Crazy 8 Press, which is Peter David's press publishing company, along with Robert Greenberger and various other people. And it's really good, it's really interesting, I really enjoyed it. It's one of those perfect books for dipping in and out of. Mm. So you don't have to buy it and worry about, oh, it's going to take me ages to get through this. It's like a proper novel. No, it's one of those perfect <laughs> a books. A proper for novel just, with words in it. With words and everything, and a narrative, and an arc, and friends become enemies, and enemies become friends. Where are the pictures? Yeah, no, I can handle that. Comics don't offer this much words. Yeah, especially nowadays. <laughs> uh, so, no, it's heartily recommended. I've been dipping in and out of it, and it's really good, and I'm really enjoying it, and it's perfect for doing that. It is. I thought Robert wouldn't be offended by me saying it's perfect toilet reading. It's a perfect boot for just sitting there. And if you're, you know, having a, just a brief yeah, one, yeah. there's a couple that are only three, two or three pages long. It's the best review a book can get, that. If, I think so. Reading. I think so. And if, you know, you've got a bit of bad stomach, and you're going to be there for a while, there are some other essays that are a lot of pages long. So it's, it's heartily recommended. Hey Kids Comics by Robert J. Kelly, published by Crazy 8 Press. It's well worth getting hold of, and I heartily endorse it. 
and it was great. And we thank you for the advanced copy. Thank you, Rob. It was but, much appreciated. But your copies will cost you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, that was the deal, dude. <laughs> I get an advanced copy. I shield his product. That's the way this works. And I have no problem with that. <laughs> you want to send me free stuff... And then have me plug it on the show. We'll happily tell you about our free stuff. I'm happy to tell you about the free stuff and the the stuff that, yeah. So Crazy 8 Press, Hey Kids Comics, well worth checking out. It's by Robert J. Kelly. Have I mentioned it enough, do you I, think, I, to I justify think, yeah. him saying, actually, no, in all seriousness, I've really, enjoyed, I've really been enjoying it. I think it's been a really good book. And Robert's a great guy. He's been on Views from the Long Box a few times. And he's aced Kilroy Strip. Is well worth checking out. It's a free daily web comic. Well worth investigating. Okay. Um, so a couple of emails. We're following the same procedure that we mentioned last week following the, the email from Dan. Uh, so this week's emails, we've got quite a few of them, but we, we have trimmed them for time and relevance in some cases. So we're just going to try and blitz through some of these before we get the, to the meat of today's show. The first one is Nightwing Gear 1 and Retcons from Chris Keith. Hello, Chris. What? Hello, mighty Leylands. After listening to this show, I realise this book is just too good to have much to say. Nightwing Year 1's not perfect, but it is Nightwing, and as I previously said, he's top ten for me. My comments regarding this book, however, are related more to the comments given about the end of this continuity, and the thought that the previous stories do not exist within the reboot. I've always thought this whole continuity rewriting thing is, is a bit silly, and all I have to say is the notion that the past is gone is why the last time I checked comic book guy from the Simpsons didn't show up at my house with a ski mask over his face demanding all of my pre-New 52 books I can still read them I can still experience those stories I know that everyone and their mother keeps harping on about this whole reboot and bemoaning the New 52 and that's fine I like much of what is old and much of what is new and I've realised that many people complain about a reboot or retcon until they don't. Case in point is this Chuck Dixon book. Chuck basically changed multiple things about Dick Grayson's origin, just because no one slapped him on the wrist and said, no, no, Chuck has Batman acting completely differently than he acted back around Batman issue 409, when they explained Nightwing post-crisis. Dixon's Batman had an attitude that was more in line with Batman post-Jason Todd's death. And it's not nitpicking, it's a retcon. Batman in this book acts like Batman has never has acted in relation to Dick. Even the coldest point of their relationship after Jason died had moments of warmth. This story was just Chuck deciding he wanted to wipe the slate and write with the gender, and because he can get away with it. Well, there's a couple of things, though. Mm-hmm. I think we, this is why we have this section of the show. To debate. To debate. A mass debate. Always, always a nice... Nice thing to have, a mass debate. And there's always an excuse to use that joke. And there's always an excuse to use that. <laughs> never get bored of it, though. Oh, no. Yeah, it's actually quite hard to say. Yeah, retcons, you know, I'm still discovering books from pre-crisis that I think are really good. Uh, post-crisis, but pre-New 52. I'm currently reading Jeff Johns' run on The Flash, the Wally West Flash. It's really good. Okay. It's dark as hell. Yeah. Much darker than Mark Waid's stuff that he was doing beforehand. And you instantly know that Jeff Johns is writing it because suddenly there's blood <laughs> on every page and dripping knives and stuff like that. But it's it's well worth checking out. The thing is, you suddenly start to realise that essentially he's now writing still the same stuff yeah. that he was writing back then. But back then it was it was fresher. I don't necessarily know that this was Chuck Dixon deciding he wanted to wipe the slate and write with an agenda. It is entirely possible that the edict came down from the higher-ups 
basically saying this is now the Batman Dick Grayson relationship post zero hour. You write a story about it. So you don't know that Chuck Dixon had an agenda with Nightwing Year One. Mm-hmm. And I think we, you need to be careful when you're throwing stuff like that around because, like we say, it may be editorially mandated. And Chuck Dixon managed to write a pretty damn good story around what could have been an editorially mandated edict. It's the best thing about comics. You blame it all on the editors. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Screw the, the writing do out. <laughs> if it's good, the writer is king. Yeah, but if, but it's, bad, if it's bad, the blame editor. the editors. Yeah, that seems fair enough. With regard to retcons and reboots, here's my conclusion, continues Chris. People don't like a reboot if they don't like the creator team. It's, subject- it's subjectivity masked in a high and mighty... Why did you change continuity preaching session? Usually. I love John Byrne. When he took over Superman, I was floored at how cool it was to finally have a Superman that didn't look like my dad. Actually had a believable personality for a change. It was interesting to me. Conversely, the retcon of the marriage of Spider-Man. Hated it then, hate it now. Although I'm really digging superior Spider-Man, that's a different story. If you like the story, you'll go with it. If you hate it, continuity is king. People freak out about Jeff Jones playing fast and loose with continuity. Oh, but Green Lantern Rebirth was cool, so that gets a pass? Make up your mind, fans. Um, did he mess around with continuity? I thought Green Lantern Rebirth was in continuity. Did he mess around with a lot of he, stuff in that? It changed. I'm not sure about retcons, but um, he brought everyone back. It could have been retcons in the disguise as continuation. Right. But the entire Green Lantern Corps was dead, so he brought them all back. Right. But he did it within the and continuity of he, the time, didn't he? He changed the whole yellow thing. Right. Uh, so I'm not sure about any retcons. Right. Okay. Well, we know Flash, Flash Rebirth he did, didn't he? Because yeah. suddenly Flash Rebirth, Barry Allen's mum was murdered. And Reverse Flash killed her. Yeah, but and his dad, dad got blamed for it, didn't he? Which is very yeah. definitely a retcon. But the Barry Allen Flash was pre-crisis anyway. So how much of that actually existed was nebulous to begin with. Yeah. So I know he messed around in Flash Rebirth. I didn't know about Green Lantern Rebirth because I was never the biggest Green Lantern reader in the world. I always thought Green Lantern was a cool concept in search of a decent character. Okay. It's like, if you'd given the Green Lantern ring to somebody in the Marvel Universe, that would have been a good book. Yeah. But giving it to somebody who's rather stiff and dull never interested me. I was, I was always interested in the, the ring. Yeah. But I always thought, oh, I don't really like Hal Jordan very much. I find him a bit boring. <laughs> And I never really liked any of the other people. I'm sure Kyle Rayner was lovely, but I never no, no. got into it. And then Hal Jordan went and killed everyone. So. And then Hal Jordan went and killed everyone, so suddenly they gave him a personality, <laughs> didn't they? P.S. The return of the Doctor Who update. Oh, I like Chris's Doctor Who update. Up to Series 5, and I just watched Amy's Choice. Nice ponytail, Rory. I must say I'm enjoying Matt Smith, and I could only snicker after his initial meeting with young Amy. After listening to your description of Scotland, to hear Matt say, You're Scottish? Fry something! Was just brilliant. <laughs> It's it's funny because it's true. I like the the line <laughs> later on about the fish fingers and custard. It's like, oh, of course, I, I create all sorts of desserts and main courses. It's like, what do you mean? Have you ever heard of a uh, Yorkshire pudding? But, no, it was rice pudding, wasn't it? Rest. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you, Chris. That was good. Uh, the Flash and Sad Sad Detroit is Patrick Kukurin's email. Hello, Patrick. Hello, fellas. Patrick here again from the now bankrupt Detroit. I am sure the news has travelled via telegraph to the greater Manchester and beyond by now, but the city of Detroit is now the largest American city to declare that it is flat out broke. I fear the efforts of Robocop, Action Jackson, Vibe and Axel Foley, all great fictional heroes of Detroit, could not save her now. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, there was a there was a, a, a documentary, oddly enough, because apparently comes Future Armor. All we make is documentaries. Yeah, about um, Detroit City and uh, the car industry that once was. So yeah, we were aware of that because we get news from all over the world. I watched a documentary about Detroit quite a few what, years Didn't ago. Didn't you watch about Detroit music though? Yeah. Well, kind of, but it was it was when you all left me with Anya in the hotel room for hours on end. We were only downstairs having a few beers. We yep. were at a wedding, so it was perfectly acceptable. It, it was a birthday, wasn't it? Was it a birthday? Yeah. It was a family gathering of some description. You went to the room to look after Anya because you're a good lad. Because I was told to go to the room and to me look and after your Anya. Are other It'll only be a few hours, he said. Had a few beers. I, just, I, don't, I don't see what your problem is. Anyway, continuing with the, the email from Patrick. Away with depressing real-world horrors and back to the magical world of comics. I really enjoyed your musing on why The Flash has not been properly developed for film or television. You're dead right on with boiling it down to the idea simply stated. He runs fast. Kids love to run. That was an astounding point, Andrew. Well, thank you very much. What more do you need than that simple statement? Do you want more? Okay, I have one. And it's a doozy. Well, before we get into the elevator pitch... Uh, kids don't love to run at the minute, apparently, because they're all fat knackers, according <laughs> to yet another documentary I was watching the other day. Just earlier on today, actually, not the other day. Well, we could either run, or we can all sit in front of our computers waiting for the new Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> we can live vicariously through Grand Theft Auto, or we can <laughs> yeah. go out and do some exercise. I know which one I'd rather do. I'd rather go out and do some exercise, but that's just me. Um... The elevator pitch would be simple, continues Patrick. Lose the whole confusing speed force, goofy cosmic treadmill, Bart J, maybe even Wally, and the whole chemical bath lightning strike origin. Instead, were from the fact that The Flash is a science-based era and was born in the science fiction era of the Silver Age. Treat the film as science fiction. Say, but if you're doing that, what's wrong with having a cosmic treadmill, dude? <laughs> maybe not in the, the original pilot yeah. episode of the first film, but, you know, cosmic treadmill was cool. Still is? Yeah. Barry Allen is a forensic engineer and he's working for an old college friend, a theoretical physicist, by running safety checks on a super collider. Barry is running failure mode, mode and effect analysis on his friend's large electron positron collider, which runs tests in the field of nuclear and particle physics. Failure mode and effect analysis are tests utilized to ensure safety and preventing inefficient results. Barry is methodical and slow, and his friend is getting upset that construction is dragging because Barry is always running tests. Barry feels guilty because he's making his friend look poor to those in charge or is afraid of losing his job on the project. Whilst working overtime one night, Barry realises there are too many dangerous faults with the construction, but does not alert anyone because he knows it will delay the progress further. Days later, all involved in the project face a big test and turn on the machine to see if it will at least run and fire a single particle. Barry realises it is unsafe and tries to stop the test or fix the problem on the fly. The result is Barry being blasted into the particle field. Barry is torn about and rebuilt before anyone can blink, but he seems in good health, but quite dazed. Soon he discovers he is able to alter his subatomic particles and do all those other spooky actions at a distance things theoretical physics describes. He can jostle his particles to move hyper-fast, which allows him to move super-fast. He can vibrate his particles to pass through solid objects and all the rest. The rest of the film involves Barry and his scientist friend testing and honing his powers plug in any rogue you wish as someone else present during the accident and you have your villain copyright Patrick O'Curran <laughs> I like that there's a part of me it's a good idea and I like the tying it all into the collider thing there's a part of me that thinks you shouldn't mess with the origins unless you have to well you know what you could go with yeah instead of the collider it's a cosmic treadmill 
<laughs> no, that doesn't work. It's, it's, it does, it so totally works. Well, the cosmic treadmill exists before the Flash does. Yeah, and they're testing it out, right? Oh, right. Because they're like, let's get some really fast Olympic runner to test it for us. But so Barry Allen's an Olympic runner. And Barry's fixing it one night. Oh, right. And the electricity, the electric bolt hits it, mm. and it starts moving, and he gets hit too, and he runs really fast because of it. It works. Yeah, if head. this was a 70s TV show version of The Flash. <laughs> you never know, they were popular. <laughs> they were, that's true. I, I like that idea, it's a good idea. My thinking, though, with the DC characters, there's not a lot you need to do to the origins. The Flash's origin still works. Yeah, you don't know what all the chemical. If you just established that all these chemicals just are been chemicals, in, you don't know what they all are. Yeah. So when they all fall over them and cause the whatever, you can't duplicate that because you don't know what they were. You never got around to labeling or analyzing them. Yeah. But the pattern, I like the collider <laughs> stuff. Unless like, someone accidentally left hydrochloric acid though. Yeah. Oh, in which no. case, he's the flash, but with no high eyes. <laughs> <laughs> the blind flash. <laughs> They call, they call him the Flash because like lightning, he never runs to the same place twice. So the only problem with that, what what villain would you plug into that? You'd need a villain with a science background, so you're not having the Pied Piper. Reverse Flash. Reverse Flash isn't a bad idea. Professor Zoom. Yeah, and then you can have your old mum being killed thing. I suppose so, yeah, that could have happened before. Like his, his mum dying was the reason up. why he went into the science. Yeah. Well, in fact, you could tie it all together. Yeah. Reverse Flash... The, the other scientist guy gets his powers at the same time Barry does. Yeah. But we later establish that he went back in time and killed the mum because there is a cosmic treadmill. Yeah. Everybody's happy, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Anyway. Well, I guess in that way, uh, they can do a live-action Flashpoint movie to explain why Superman's wearing a different outfit. Or even better, Yeah. you have all that as backstory in the first film... You have Reverse Flash be made in the first film, but he doesn't become the bad guy till the second film. And And it's only in the second film you learn that Reverse Flash went back in time and killed his mum. Yeah. Always plan for the sequel, dude. (laughs) Anyway, yeah. Unless it flops. Unless it flops, yeah. I like that. It was good, that. Um, Thanks for making my runs go even more fun every morning. You're very welcome. Thanks for addressing my email. Andrew, if your legs ever feel like lead, work that lactic acid out with foam rolling pre or post run. I would do that if I knew what foam rolling was. So you'll have to let me know what foam rolling is. Get a floor foam roll on it. But it could very well be that. That very thing. Yeah. Our next email is new listener, Gus Shaw. Ooh, we like new listeners. Hello, new listener, Gus Shaw. Salutations, folks. I recently started listening to your show. I finished your episode on Nightwing Year One and found it enjoyable. Only enjoyable. It's good enough. It's a pass. We, yeah. Not very enjoyable. <laughs> no, but, but not moderately enjoyable. Just enjoyable. You're just enjoyable. And, good he, and, he, and he didn't say it sucked. Yeah, yeah. So, it's good enough. Yeah, we'll have that. The episode was new when I downloaded it, but it took a while before I gave it to listen. It was only 90 minutes, dude. <laughs> I never had much luck understanding the Batman region of the comic book universe. It seems like there were so many critical milestones between the various Robins, Batgirls, Alfreds, that without prior knowledge of everything that came before, I felt lost trying to jump in. To me, it feels like I need a degree in Batmanology to start reading his comics. See, of all of them... Isn't Batman the most easily accessible, really? You ignore all the new 52 crap about five-year timeline and Robins and stuff. It's kind of like Spider-Man, because... Well, I would argue even Batman... Batman is more easier. That makes no sense grammatically. Batman is easier to jump into than Spider-Man. Because there are a lot of Spider-Man trade paperbacks out there, but a lot of them are tied into an overarching continuity. Batman has an awful lot of stories that are standalones. Yeah. 
Well, they still have Spider-Man, though. Not as many. The only difference is even the standalone Spider-Mans have um, some characters. Yeah, and arcs and stuff. Batman has Killing Joke, Year One, Long Halloween, Dark Victory, The Man Who Laughs, Dark Knight Strikes Again, whatever you think of the quality of Dark Knight Strikes Again. Dark Knight <laughs> Returns, No Man's Land, this is just off the looking up at my bookshelf. All those that you can read without any real knowledge of Batman beyond Bruce Wayne is a millionaire who puts on a suit and fights crime. It's not like that anymore. Is it not? Mid-2000s Morrison era. Yeah, but, can't go and pick but Grant Morrison's era is a separate entity in and of itself. It Grant Morrison's era be, is one big long story arc. Yeah, But, but what I'm saying is there are a lot of Batman stories that stand alone as bookshelf editions. Even with a separate title. Yeah. yeah. There's an awful lot out there for you to explore, even if you're not. Superman doesn't have as much. What is it? Kryptonite, Superman for all seasons. Is that it? Really? Uh, Man of Steel? I guess like the best Batman title to be for just jumping into would be the, the Legends of the Dark Knight digital series. Yeah. Oh, well, all the digital series are really good. Mm. Batman 66 is really good for just dipping into. So is Adventures of Superman. So Smallville, apparently, although I've never read it. Yeah. Uh, even though it's probably no longer relevant to the New 52, continued Gus, I enjoyed your Nightwing episode. It felt like a good primer on Dick Grayson, who's about to get slaughtered in Forever Evil. He can't even wait five pages to do your... Uh, he's not getting killed, Is by all accounts. No, he's just okay. going to have his secret identity revealed. Allegedly, I don't know if that's true. Well, for in the preview that I read, which is like the first five pages, so he goes to Arkham... Gets beaten the crap out of And then the people who show up in Forever Evil, who I will not tell you. Okay, I haven't finished Trinity War. Um, no, I'm halfway through Trinity War. Yeah, it's the people who start Forever Evil show up and go, oh, who's this bloke? And then <laughs> Oi! Who's this bloke here? Not go, e- blimey, governor! It'd be Nightwing, it be! It's not quite as blunt as that, but <laughs> this happens within five pages. Nightwing shows up, bad guys show up, they beat him up a bit, go, you know what, it's time we'll take him to our secret base. <laughs> Alright, we tie him up, give him a Glasgow kiss, take him back to the secret base. What do you say, Harry? Forever Evil would be better if it was a bunch of... <laughs> but it would be better if it was Michael Caine and <laughs> the Italian job. Now, call blimey, we're going to get that Robin fella. He's called Nightwing. He's Robin to me. Forever Evil was only the name it was going by during development. <laughs> Forever Kane. <laughs> Forever Michael Caine. <laughs> The real Alfred strikes back. I like that. I like that idea a great deal. Now, you were only supposed to blow his bloody head off. <laughs> yes, I like that idea. <laughs> <laughs> the Nightwing job. <laughs> Thank you, Christian. by Didio. Art by Didio. by Didio. How many words can a Nightwing die? Uh, (laughs) Gus concludes thank you for sharing your knowledge I don't know that we do that and enjoyment of comic books I look forward to both future episodes and dredging through the archives yours respectfully Gus you're very welcome but glad you're here thank you for checking us out we always like new people listening Uh, if the rule that all emails must be renamed Michael is still in effect I prefer the Slavic variant of Mikhail well we will call you Mikhail from now on Okay, that can be his secret identity (laughs) Mikhail Uh, Bobby Corkley emailed in with hello Leylands first off this email is about Ben Affleck and Jubilee although a Ben Affleck Jubilee could be fun (laughs) so Ben Affleck is cast as Batman in the next Man of Steel movie almost funny that fans who clamoured for him to direct Justice League movie now all grit their teeth at it playing Batman but this will be a Superman and Batman movie leading into a Justice League movie presumably and not the start of a new Batman trilogy so I'm not going to worry too much 
I'm not worried at all. You know... Just don't watch the movies. <laughs> As an acting challenge, I don't think Batman is that hard of a role to play. I've got to be brutally honest with you. Yeah, most of the time it's all in the physicality and the voice. The costume is doing most of the work for you. I have argued many times Superman is a much harder role for an actor to play than Batman is. Because Batman is essentially one-note obsessive. The Bruce Wayne stuff's an act. But let's be honest, how many actors that have played Batman have got to play Bruce Wayne in any serious way? Christian Bale had one scene in the first movie where we saw the fun facade of Bruce Wayne. For the rest of it, it was just morose. Mm. Val Kilmer didn't really play a lot of Bruce Wayne in any way different to Batman. George Clooney certainly didn't. Michael Keaton kind of tried in the first one, but his Bruce Wayne was vague Mm. and, like, always somewhere else. Superman's a much harder role because you've got to sell, A, the Clark Kent identity. You've got to sell Superman, which is a much harder part to play than Batman. Yeah. And you've got to do it in such a way that they're both the same guy, but you're convincing the people that are watching that it's not the same guy. But at the same time, you're also playing the third angle of the guy who knows that he's Superman and Clark Kent, and neither of those are the real person. Yeah. So it's an acting challenge, I think, that the actors who played Superman have never really gotten the credit for. Superman's a much harder role to play than Batman. Ben Affleck could show up... And be Batman. Yeah. I mean, so I, I don't, I'm not really bothered about I, this. I want to see Nick Cage try and be Superman. And I don't. <laughs> what did I just say about it? He needs a good actor <laughs> to play Superman. Nick Cage is perfectly watchable. You know, Drive Angry. What a crazy-ass movie that is. But, no, he's not Superman. How did that movie go down? No! Not the kryptonite! <laughs> Uh, the email from Bobby continues. Your review of the first Wolverine limited series was great. Well, thank you very much. Especially how Logan's healing used to have limits. I think the supercharging of Logan's healing factor happened after Magneto ripped out his adamantium in X-Men 25. Since the healing factor didn't have to concentrate on stopping the adamantium from poisoning, it became much stronger. I didn't know that. I don't know a lot about Wolverine and the X-Men post about 1985, <laughs> to be honest with you. Your talk about Wolverine's attitude on killing reminded me of Jubilee and her time as Wolverine's sidekick. In Wolverine 74, written by Larry Harmer, Jubilee tracks down the hitmen who killed her parents. She thought the deaths were an accident before a timey-wimey story revealed otherwise. Jubilee is about to use her powers to kill them, but Logan says how easy it would be for her if she were that kind of person. When Jubilee points out that Logan has killed a lot of people, he responds, Yeah, you want to sit with me some night and talk to them all? Jubilee doesn't kill the hitmen, but she does kick them in a delicate area. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Jubilee's time with Logan gave her a very strong no-killing code even when she confronted the man who hired the hitmen in a Generation X annual. These days, Jubilee is a non-killing vampire, but I'd rather ignore that. Yeah, that seems sensible. Finally, it seems David Hasselhoff defeats Joss Whedon. How? Well, a cast list for Whedon's Marvel Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. gives a list of new characters, none of whom are from the S.H.I.E.L.D. comics of the 60s and 90s. Now, you can say certain things about the David Hasselhoff, Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. TV movie, but at least the good guys were named after established S.H.I.E.L.D. comic book characters. The bad guys, Andrea Andreas von Strucker, were originally X-Men villains, but that's another topic. So in one way, Hasselhoff defeats Whedon something to think about. <laughs> Keep up the good work, Bobby Coakley. I've said before, Hasloff's not actually bad casting for Nick Fury. Yeah. He looks the part. Not sure about the acting, but he looked the part. He's the one dubbed over. 
And he, he took it seriously. He played it straight. I'm, I, I'm not he down. SpongeBob straight, you know. I'm not down <laughs> on David Hasselhoff the way a lot of people are. I think David Hasselhoff is a very entertaining actor. I think he made a bad career look good, didn't he? Yeah. So, <laughs> there you go. And he has turned everything that could potentially have destroyed a lesser man's career into a positive. The Hoff. He owned it. Yeah. He's got t-shirts of himself. Don't hassle the half. His career in Germany as a multi-million dollar platinum selling singer turned it into <laughs> a plus. Uh, you've got to applaud the guy. Come I on think. and jump yeah. in my car. Yeah. There you go, see? You know, I, I, my hat's off to David Hasselhoff. I think any man who can take this, this career that has had so <laughs> many potential stumbling blocks and turn them into pluses gets, he, you know... Him and Nick Cage are two sides of the same yeah. coin. No, I absolutely believe that. They should play brothers in a movie. <laughs> I totally believe that. In fact, Nick Fury, I want to champion Nick Fury for my Howling Commandos film in World War II. Bring him back as Sergeant Fury. <laughs> That's what I want to see. Although I think he's had too many facelifts at this point. Mm. But no, I've, I've, I've got a lot of time for David Hasselhoff, to be honest with you. I think he's eminently entertaining. Our final email tonight, which we will just get through very quickly. Uh, Rob Stubbs has emailed in, I came in number 338,929 in my class at the best at what I do. <laughs> Hello, Mr. Andrew Oldman Logan and Mr. Michael Young Kitty Pride Leyland, whose team-up book sadly got retconned by the five-year timeline. Uh, it's still in your collection, dude. <laughs> there are some great fight scenes through the issues with Logan showing how deadly he was becoming a rampaging killing machine. I think some people focus on the aspects of him being a hyper-efficient killing machine to the detriment of the real Logan. I'm not saying he doesn't like fighting, because that's a part of his character, but he doesn't kill to fit for fun, but always towards a purpose. The writers who don't get that ruin the multi-level characterization that Logan has the potential to be when he's used at his best. The elimination of Shingen's rival again shows what a dirtbag he is at using his daughter to be a motivational tool for Logan. Logan can satisfy neither woman, but hey, as Mariko rejects him for being too violent while Yukio rejects him for not being violent enough I think that was one of the cruxes of the story that Logan doesn't just kill for the hell of it mm. kills when he has to but he's not a psychopath which some people do sometimes think he is don't they yeah. he's not the punisher I think he is a bit of a psychopath he's a controlled psychopath mm. but he's definitely a but psychopath he enjoys what he's doing yeah he thoroughly enjoys what he's doing doesn't he uh, there's a good book called X-Men and Philosophy which has a chapter dealing with Wolverine called Amnesia, Potential Identity in the Many Lives of the Wolverine which delves into the concepts of does the memories he have make him a different person? So when he uncovers or recovers certain elements of his memory does make him a different person or not? It's interesting as this Wolverine in this story is different from the Wolverine who was an agent of Apocalypse or the Wolverine in Age of Ultra. I have to go and get ready to dog sit. <laughs> oh, have fun. So I'm sending this off to you guys to get it done. R.L. Stubbs Jr. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for your email. I, yeah, I agree with you about Wolverine's fighting. People who don't write him properly write him as a berserker rage all the time, don't they? Quick Not break. Not. Yeah. <laughs> Quick break. Adverts for other shows, all of which are fantastic. And we'll be right back. G.I. Joe will return after these messages. Two longtime fans of two bionic shows discuss an episode in detail every two weeks with one guest host. The Six Million Dollar Man, The Bionic Woman, The Mythology, A Look Behind the Scenes, Those Sound Effects, 
and the fashions. Oh my god, the fashions. Cyborgs, a bionic podcast, hosted by John S. Drew and Paul K. Bisson. Find us at chronicrift.com slash cyborgs or subscribe on iTunes. is the codename for a highly trained rapid deployment force. Its purpose, to defend human freedom against COBRA, a ruthless terrorist organization. Action Force is the national heroes. Action Force will dare. Action Force. Our back. Say hello, Michael. Hello, Michael. <laughs> As ever, planned for the perfect positioning of the biscuit in mouth. People will think we planned it. It's, well, we do. It's a comedy bit, because we keep repeating it. Repetition is funny. Is it? Allegedly. <laughs> well, for the sake of Stephen Laser, <laughs> That was just for Stephen. Yes, yeah. <laughs> But you were still swallowing your chocolate biscuit, so it didn't quite work. Gargling chocolate biscuit isn't like gargling glass. <laughs> well... Anyway, how's your McVitie's? God, I prefer. You <laughs> prefer Oreos. That was Martian Man on tour, wasn't it? Anyway, although he did leave an Oreo on his grave, you know, when John Johns was dead, but mm. now he's not dead. No. No. Anyway, tonight's show, lovely, lovely listeners. See, yeah, you see, we've got two listeners now. <laughs> tonight's show will be a little different. For the longest time, one of the major topics of the email section was G.I. Joe. Michael and I know nothing about G.I. Joe. We didn't even know what it was, which frequently left us baffled by many of the comments. I originally thought it was simply the US version of Action Man. Action Man was a simply wonderful toy from my youth. You bought a 12-inch action figure and then bought many clothes and accessories to go with it. Sounds a bit girl. No, 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 no. The figures I had had flocked real her, like Velcro. A scar running down his right cheek, special grip hands to better accommodate the guns and other accessories, and best of all, eagle eyes, a small dial on the base of the neck, allowing the user to make Action Man's eyes move from left to right. I had a pretty cool one, uh, ones as well. Did you, did you have Action Man? Yeah, there was one where he, he was an astronaut, and had a dude. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, one of them was an F1 driver. Yeah. Uh, no, these were the 90s, late 90s yeah. ones, weren't they? Yes. Uh, the karate kick one. Yeah. Um, there was one which had uh, his eyes changed. So he pressed a button in the back of his head, which was a helmet, and he had eyes. Mm. Or you press it and it flips over and he's wearing a visor, and you can look through the back of his head and see through the visor. Yeah. Yeah, you had some cool ones. And then the, they did another show, which was essentially... Was it Action Force? No, uh, it was nothing to do with it, but it was essentially the same thing with the Max Steel or something. Right, I don't remember that. I had a few of them, because they had a, a, one of the action figures was a robot, and his head exploded, which <laughs> yeah. we bought in Florida and was one of the coolest toys I had. It was awesome, wasn't it? Uh, the thing I liked about the Eagle Eyes was the only move from 
left to right <laughs> yeah. like that when you move that thing on the back of his neck so if somebody attacked him from above, above he was out of luck wouldn't he actually man's like a dog <laughs> he can't look up <laughs> That's quite We true. had a game as well for the PlayStation. What, an Action Man game? Yeah. And they did cartoons, which I had on video. Yeah, they did action, an Action Man cartoon, I remember that. Uh, well, the accessories, going back to what you said about it being a doll, <laughs> range from multiple different military costumes when I was a kid, ranging from World War One, and later had astronauts. I had an astronaut costume. I know the country's military, as they started expanding, so there was an Australian jungle fighter and an American Green Beret and stuff like that. The clothing sets were all real cloth. So they were proper clothes. They were all era appropriate with the the the, um, the stuff that came with it, with the guns and the knives and, and tanks and jeeps. My favourite accessory it was a parachute that really worked. Yeah. You put it on your action man figure and I used to chuck it out my bedroom window and he would, if, obviously if the wind <laughs> caught it right, the parachute would open and he would sail to the ground. Yeah. Granted that only happened like every one in ten times. <laughs> action man would flop. We would try that once actually, I was staying at Nan and Grandad's, so your dad had an action man with a parachute. Yeah, so we made our own parachute out of a handkerchief and attached oh, it. Oh, I can see this working. We attached it to a Spider-Man action figure, and it worked. <laughs> it worked pretty well until it landed in the gutters on the garage. And then he was stuck there. Yeah. Did you never get him down? We did, actually. Uh, it was our own, the, the old one I have where all the black lines have come off and his hands like because he was in a gutter yeah lying in the gutters yeah looking at the stars uh, G.I. Joe my research has informed me did bear a resemblance to Action Man although in the US the military angle was played down somewhat in the wake of the Vietnam War both figures were marketed at the same basic audience and by the same company Palatoy in the UK was an offshoot of the US toy company Hasbro the American G.I. Joe seems to thrive most when it was relaunched in 1982 as a series of three and a quarter inch figures the standard size since the success of Star Wars and an in-depth backstory fueled by a successful cartoon series and, of course, a comic book. Oh, we wouldn't be here, would we? Marvel Comics had had some success with licensed properties in the late 1970s and early 1980s. They'd taken Star Wars, a phenomenally successful movie to be sure, and expanded it to include concepts and themes not present in the original, and in the process turned Marvel's financial situation around. Under the steady hand of Bill Mantlo, they'd also taken toy lines The Micronauts and Ron Space Knight and fleshed them out, creating compelling characters with complex backstories out of what could have been a cheap money grab. Conan adapted the original Robert E. Howard stories before exploring the world more fully in original material. G.I. Joe was simply the latest license Marvel could get their dirty hands on with a view to turning it into a successful comic. Little did they realise that under the guiding hand of writer Larry Harmer, it would go on to be a historically crucial moment in media convergence, second only to Conan as the longest lasting of all the media tie-ins Marvel published, with a hugely impressive 155 issue run, and one of the reasons for the property's longevity. Because of our complete lack of knowledge of G.I. Joe, we had to reach out across the ocean for some advice and guidance. With that in mind, I asked two people who had a knowledge and love of the property for two single issues that would give us an overview of what the series was about, as well as telling a good story. The two people I consulted were J. David Weeder of the Pad Smash and Dave's Amazing World of Comics podcast, and Luke Giaconetti of the Earth's Destruction Directive podcast, and they picked two issues for us to look at. But before I let you know what they suggested, because I'm nothing if not a tease, 
To better familiarise ourselves with the premise and characters of G.I. Joe, we decided we would read issue number one. The very first issue of G.I. Joe was released with a June 1982 cover date and written by Larry Harmer with art by Herb Trimp, or Trimpe, and Bob McLeod of the Clan McLeod. It has an excellent movie poster-style cover by Trimp and McLeod of the G.I. Joe team leaping off a moving tank, guns blazing. The logo is pretty striking, although I didn't understand the tagline, G.I. Joe, a real American hero. Why is he a real American hero when there's a team of them? Well, it's Joe, not Joe's. So is it not G.I. Joe, yeah, but the that, real American hero, and the team is... But that still implies it's singular. Well, Why would the team be called G.I. Joe? Maybe um, it, the targeting poor families who can only afford that. <laughs> <laughs> That's very considerate of them. That's very considerate of corporate America to not want as much of your money as humanly possible. But actually, in the board meeting, go, well, I think we should market these toys at poor people who can only afford one figure. Capitalism is not what it was. <laughs> In the 80s, it wasn't what it would be. No, no, no. Is that what you're saying? Donald Trump was not, a, not selling sources. <laughs> Donald Trump did not work at Hasbro. That's what you're saying. Okay, fair enough. The story itself, called Operation Lady Doomsday, was an interesting introduction to the team. Apparently, a lady scientist named Adele Burkhart has created a retaliatory weapon system capable of annihilating all life on planet Earth, entitled The Doomsday Project. Feeling that she was misled by the government into cooperating, although how she could have thought something called the Doomsday Project was a peacekeeping tool is slightly unclear. On the way to testify, she is kidnapped by agents of COBRA, a terrorist organisation, and the special counter-terrorist group Delta, a.k.a. G.I. Joe, are tasked with retrieving her despite some of the team's misgivings about Dr. Burkhardt. Locating Cobra isn't too difficult, based as they are on Cobra Island. <laughs> the Joes move in and the requisite high-octane action takes place, leading to Burkhart being retrieved and the main Cobra bad guys, the Baroness and Cobra Commander, escape to fight another day. The Joes realise that sometimes politics are more complicated than what they seem, and Burkhart learns that not all government officials are unscrupulous pigs. <laughs> synopsis was slightly pithy. A little bit. <laughs> um, I really like this first issue, even though my synopsis was slightly pithy. Uh, whilst the hardware and gadgetry are rather obvious adverts for the toy line. Oh, yeah. For the toy line, sorry. Duh, I will bring out my laser gun. I didn't think they were any more obtrusive than Batman <laughs> or James Bond. Hop, hop in our battle tank. <laughs> full rocket launching action. And, and here comes here, man. <laughs> The setup was pretty straightforward. It could have been any action adventure series from the, the 1980s, wasn't it? Tonally, yeah. It was very similar to the A Team or Barbar Black Sheep or Erwolf. And why I was reading this, I did hear a pounding Mike Post and Pete Carpenter score. Did you not? Did you not hear? Did you not hear that? Because I totally did. That's what I heard while I was reading it. Uh, there was a little rah-rah, aren't we wonderful? A little? In some of it, which was a bit... There was a bit of posturing, yeah. wasn't there? But I, I guess that's what you want in your real American hero story. Yeah, I, d I didn't find it off-putting. So it didn't become... It wasn't there enough to be off-putting. Uh, uh, the story itself was well-paced, or I thought it was. However, were this really scored, and where it surprised me most, was in the subtext... 
I, I really was not expecting subtext mm. in a G.I. Joe comic. Whilst this can easily be read as a simple action-adventure comic designed to sell some toys, Hammer manages to introduce some intriguing ideas into his script. Dr. Burkhart is portrayed as either a patriot fearful her invention is going to be used for nefarious purposes or a traitor to her own people for her actions. There are even members of G.I. Joe who suggest they sneak onto Cobra Island, put a bullet in her head, and then just get the hell out of Dodge. Problem solved. Um, During the course of the story, Burkhart alerts that sometimes military intervention is necessary, and the Joes who had an issue with Burkhart changed their opinion of her when Burkhart puts herself in the way of a bullet to save a member of the G.I. Joe team. The Joes. (laughs) Whatever. These shades of grey enhance the story greatly. There are obvious parallels with J. Robert Oppenheimer, but also, more recently, Edward Snowden. And I have to be honest, I was not expecting this level of depth Mm. from this series. I was pleasantly surprised by this. What did you think, Michael? I love the bad guys, didn't it? The bad guys are great. Oh, yeah, with um, Madame Hydra. And... uh... (laughs) (laughs) The Baroness! Yeah, yeah. Similarities... Purely coincidental. And, uh, yeah, Cobra Commander. I loved him. Because you have several different commanders. and <laughs> No, he's the Cobra Commander. Say, say like, um, you have a group of five of them and one of them is a bit ill. He stays at home and someone else takes his place. because yeah, it could be anyone mean, behind the mask. Cobra Commander, yeah. <laughs> I liked Cobra Commander. I did, I did think the bad guys were very... The bad guys were bad. Yeah. The good guys were good. It was black and white. Yeah, but that's why the subtext about Dr. Burkhart surprised me. Yeah. That you, you did have this... They didn't, he didn't bang you over the head with it, so fair play to Larry Hammer. This is subtext. Yeah, but he did have the whole, is she a patriot? Yeah. Or is she a traitor angle? And by the end of the story, you're still not sure. But various people have changed their opinion on her because of her actions in the story. Yeah. And there was a level of grey to what is just a standard black and white action-adventure comic book. Mm. I was pleasantly surprised by it. Honestly, what I was expecting at the end of the issue was, hmm, maybe military action is needed. Didn't mm. get that, did I, you? Hmm, I never knew that. Well, knowing is half the battle. Well, didn't get that. Yeah, Joe. Go, Joe. <laughs> you didn't get any of that. No. And I think that's all to the comic's credit. You didn't get any of that heavy-handed posturing that, you just, that they could have done. They could easily have done Which that at the end of the book. Family Guy, G.I. Joe, is well known for. Yeah, so, but that wasn't here. Yeah. So either Family Guy is making a comedic point at the expense of slightly stretching reality, which Family Guy never does. Oh, of course not, no. Or the comic was a lot more subtle and intelligent than perhaps we thought it was going to be. Mm. I'm leaning towards the latter. <laughs> to be honest with you. The first issue was double-sized and had lots of content. There was weapons profiles, essentially adverts for the toys, cross-sections of the G.I. Joe HQ, which was stuff I always liked when they used to do it with the Baxter building in Fantastic Four, character bios, and a backup story featuring the two most interesting characters from the first story, female agent Scarlet and mute operative Snake Eyes. I liked that one. I liked that one as well. I thought it was really good. That that second story is not in my reprint of this. I picked up the reprint of this from IDW in the 50p bins. Oh, the one issue reprint. Yeah, and it's got a a J. Scott Campbell cover. Yeah. And I'd completely forgotten that I had it until I read this story. And I was like, I've read this before. (laughs) So I'm sat there going, 
But I know nothing about G.I. Joe. When have I read this? Yeah. And then I remembered that I'd picked that up in a 50p bin somewhat, purely because it was in a 50p bin. Yeah. And it was around the time they were all discussing G.I. Joe in the email section. Yeah. And I saw it in a 50p bin. I thought, go on, I'll have this. It's a one-shot. I didn't know it was the first issue of the comic. Yeah. A reprint of. So I quite enjoyed it. So it was good. It was very, 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 very good. Mr. J. David Wheater's pick, however, was not issue number one. It was G.I. Joe issue 21, which apparently is one of the most infamous and influential of the G.I. Joe series, and in some circles, regarded as one of the finest Marvel comics of the era. Entitled Silent Interlude, it was released on December 6th, 1983, with a cover date of March 1984. The writer, penciler, was Larry Harmer. The inker was Steve Lealoa. George Roussos was the colourist, Denny O'Neill was the editor, and Jim Shooter was the editor-in-chief. The cover, by Hammer and Klaus Janssen, contains the only words in the entire issue, not in counting ads and some computer screen gubbins. The most unusual G.I. Joe story ever, the copy runs, as Snake Eyes hangs from a grapple on the wall, opening fire at off-panel adversaries as bullets ricochet around him. I liked it, I thought it was a very effective cover. I like the fact that it's all black, red and yellow. Yeah. I thought it was good. Don't know how they're missing him. I know, it's not like he's jumping all over the No, time. but that, that's always an issue with stuff like that, isn't it? Mm. What did you think? It's pretty good. I liked it. Thought it was a very good cover. Uh, a white-clad ninja figure swoops into Cobra Castle. Do they name everything with just Cobra at the front of it? Yeah. The Cobra car. The Cobra toilet. Guys, why can't we find these Cobra people? <laughs> Quickly, pass me a Cobra bagel. <laughs> I like the idea that, like, the Batman TV show yeah. just put Cobra in front of everything. You see American government start to go, what could they be? <laughs> Do you want a cup of Cobra coffee? We searched all over the Cobra Ocean. <laughs> they were nowhere near Cobra Island anymore. And they weren't even in Cobra Opia. <laughs> and the, the TV show is hosted by Cobra Winfrey. <laughs> <laughs> the United States of Cobra. Oh, the favourite film is Sylvester Sloan's Cobra. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, that's anyone's favourite film. Anyway, anyway, this story runs thusly. A white-clad ninja figure swoops into Cobra Castle on a rocket jetpack. He has with him a bound, gagged and covered hostage that, when he lands, he reveals to Cobra Commander is Shana O'Hara, a.k.a. Scarlet, a member of G.I. Joe. She is taken away to the dungeon where the ninja attempts to seduce her, possibly, but she bites him. The white-clad ninja threatens to cut her with his sword, but instead leaves. Elsewhere, a silver-masked figure with a Dracula collar learns that an aircraft just flew over, but the probability that there could have been an airborne insertion are not, 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 18%. So obviously it was an airborne insertion, wasn't it? <laughs> Wouldn't you, as a bad guy, you alright, okay. So the odds here are not point not 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 eighteen percent. I think I'll go and check it out anyway. No! He doesn't do that. Well those odds are very similar to the chances of anything coming from Mars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but tell me the odds. Outside, Snake Eyes parachutes in from the aircraft that just flew by. He lands on one of the many snake-type statues, they have more of them than Gotham has gargoyles, and makes his way down slowly, dispatching Cobra operatives as he goes. Meanwhile, Scarlet uses a herpin to pick the locks off her shackles and attacks the white ninja bloke when he returns. Using the element of surprise, she manages to overpower him and traps him in the dungeon. On the roof, Snake Eyes is spotted and he throws a few Cobra operatives off the roof, catching the attention of the masked Dracula wannabe. Snake Eyes adopts 
the uniform of a Cobra operative and points to the others in the wrong direction, whilst Ninja the White escapes and summons up some red ninjas to help him find Scarlet. Scarlet, however, has found the rocket jetpack thing Ninja the White had on the opening pages, and after dispatching the guard, she makes a break for freedom. Snake Eyes has meantime found Scarlet's empty cell, and Ninja the Red finds him. Snake Eyes makes his way past them only to confront Ninja the White. Snake Eyes overpowers him and makes for the exit as Scarlet zooms by on the rocket jetpack. The two greet each other, but Ninja the White arrives and hurls his sword at Snake Eyes. Scarlet lands in front of it to protect Snake Eyes, but Snake Eyes stops it in the palms of his hands. He hurls the sword over the side of the building and he and Scarlet escape into the night, but in the fight, the sleeves of both Snake Eyes and Ninja the White were torn, revealing similar tattoos. Page 1 I suppose I should mention that this issue is much lauded because it's completely silent. Uh-huh. It's like enough said month comic, only good. Ah, uh, see what you did there. See what I did there? Um, I presume that the flying jet thing and the Cobra Castle were much sought after play sets. Yeah. Because Cobra Castle looks like a pretty cool playset. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's not like it's disguised or anything. No, well, no. Well, no, it's Cobra Castle. No, yeah. With all the Cobras on it. Uh, I do have a problem wondering why they could never find... Well, they quite clearly can find them. Snake Eyes knows where they are. Yeah. Why do they just bomb the place? <laughs> Nuke it from orbit. Yeah. It's the only way to be safe. <laughs> I want to know why uh, the white ninja guy's not burning his feet off on that jetpack. That's always the thing with jetpacks, isn't it? Theoretically, yeah. this should be burning the skin off your ass, <laughs> But it never does. No. And you kind of give it a pass, because jetpacks are cool. Yeah. Aren't they? Um, Cobra Commander wears a hood. Which he always does. Unless he puts his battle helmet Unless on. Unless he puts his battle helmet which on. Which he'll yeah. tell you it's his battle helmet and that he's putting his battle helmet on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, not in this issue. Well, no, he no. won't. Obviously. Sign language. Yeah, possibly. But then we see the Dracula wannabe on page 7 with his huge collar and silver mask. Are they the same guy? What, is Cobra Commander? Yeah, is that Cobra Commander wearing the silver mask who looks like Bo- Box from Logan's Run? No, I don't think he is. Right, so is that a different fella? Yeah. Okay, what what brought you to that conclusion, given this is only the second issue of G.I. Joe we've ever read? Um, I, I think I knew enough about it to know that Cobra Commander has a very definite look. Yeah, but why do you have two masked villains, then? Everyone's, is there a reason for that? Everyone's masked in it. Your snake eyes, your well, white ninja uh, guy. I think everyone in Cobra needs to be masked, unless you're Madam Hydra. Unless there was some kind of plot at the, the end where we discovered that one of the people who worked with G.I. Joe. Yeah, that's yeah. entirely possible. I just thought it a bit strange they had two masked leaders. I mean, surely they wouldn't all wear masks. Page six. Um, you're going to have to explain page six to me. Was Ninja the White attempting to be affectionate to Scarlet, or in Mark Miller comic, would this have been a rape? I have no idea what was going Because there was no dialogue, it was kind of confusing that time. Because he's got her tied up and she's knelt down at waist height, so that in and of itself is slightly suspect. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't get... What was her face doing in the second panel? Is she... Is she winking and smirking at him is what I got. Well, I didn't get that she was winking at him. And then he, he reaches down and he just kind of gently caresses her <laughs> cheek, to which she bites his thumb off, nearly. He takes his sword out like he's going to hack her head off. And then he changes his mind. And he seems to have some kind of superpowers because he leaps quite a fair distance up through the hole yeah, he's a ninja. into the dungeon. Or is that just because he's a ninja? I guess, yeah. Because he is a ninja. Yes. Is that the explanation? All right, fair no enough. Prize in it. I was a bit confused by that page. I didn't... Unless we're going to find out when we find out who Ninja the White is, that he knows her. I thought he was always the bad guy. 
Because from what I know, that him and Snake Eyes like polar opposites on two different teams. But wasn't he? This is his introduction to the series, Ninja the White. Is it? I think so. Right. From what limited research I did, I think this because the whole point of this was was to approach the issues knowing nothing about the series. Yeah. So I didn't want to do too much research. But my understanding is this is Ninja the White's first appearance. Right. Maybe he is a bad guy with a heart. Yeah, possibly. So I was a bit confused about that. The art on pages 5 and 8 where Snake Eyes is entering the building is awesome. Yeah. The um, aeroplane drops him off. It's one of those cargo aeroplanes. So it opens the back. The the one that James Bond's fighting on in the Living Daylights, if you remember that. Yeah. And he opens the back and Snake Eyes jumps out and the plane drives away. So was somebody else in the G.I. Joe team in on this? Because I got that this was a covert mission. I got that Snake Eyes wasn't supposed to be doing this. And he's gone, screw you, I'm disobeying orders and I'm going after Scarlet. It's not like he's never done that before, yeah. after the backup. But somebody must have been piloting the plane. Yeah. Because so, there's obviously a relationship between these two people. Well, wouldn't it make more sense if they did a halo jump rather than a low jump like this? Because they wouldn't have picked up on radar then. That's true. Maybe, yeah, he should have done a halo jump. Yeah, that would have made more sense than having an aeroplane fly in and then the bad guy to spot it and go, ah, nobody could possibly infiltrate Cobra Castle. What a numpty. I mean, like, Snake Eyes is the kind of guy who probably would do a halo jump. Yeah, and totally be able to pull it off. Again, they are on page 8 where he lands on top of the big Cobra on top of Cobra Castle. <laughs> on top of another Cobra. On top of another Cobra. The art's really good. Scarlet escapes with the lock picking the her thing. You'd think they'd take all them out of the her by now, wouldn't you? Yeah. Maybe that wasn't a cliche in 1985. Maybe. It's entirely possible. It was fresh. Yeah, it was possibly fresh in, in the mid-80s. The Dracula cosplayer has little chess pieces of various members of the cast and spends a lot of time just stirring the little dolly as of the Baroness. Mm. Which I thought was a bit creepy. <laughs> he wasn't creepy enough, was he? He wasn't creepy enough, even though he looks like Box from Logan's well, Run. What I want to know is where does he get all these chess pieces from? I love, I love the idea that he he's... goes to the Hasbro website and offers <laughs> a G.I. Joe chess set. a G.I. Joe chess set, yeah. <laughs> I wonder if the characters in G.I. Joe can buy G.I. Joe toys. Yeah. That would be awesome. That Cobra is selling the rights to their own comic. <laughs> oh, they do one of those behind-the-scenes t- behind TV show. <laughs> behind the music type things yeah. exposing it today Cobra Commander is in the toilet <laughs> the real housewives of Cobra Command <laughs> <laughs> oh come on that's a franchise just waiting to happen isn't it ah uh, Madam Hydra why did you say that about me at the party <laughs> why did you insult my shoe line <laughs> you've watched far too much of that show I'm going to have to cut you off um, there's an interesting contrast midway through the issue where Scarlet is escaping from the, the cellar dungeon thing so she's coming up where Snake Eyes lands on the roof and then descends downwards and I'd liked that they swapped pages so you get a page of Snake Eyes then you get a page of Scarlet and a page of Snake Eyes and I liked how they did that I thought that was quite interesting um, page 12 it looks like Snake Eyes has absolutely no problem whatsoever killing people no. The scene where Cobra Guard falls past Dracula's window was hysterically funny. Mm. <laughs> he throws the guard off the roof and he plummets to the ground. Because it's a silent issue, he doesn't do the Wilhelm scream. Ah. Yeah, he doesn't do any of that. Um, 
And he goes right past the window where Box from Logan's Run is sat. Is that what he is? <laughs> yeah, now? he's Box from Logan's Run. <laughs> and he turns around just as the guy flies past the window. And I had a lovely vision of him doing a double take. <laughs> I'm sat at the computer surfing for Palm, over Palm. <laughs> he looks out the window and then goes, What? <laughs> and I had a vision of him doing like that guy from Superman the movie. He goes, Huh? <laughs> That would have amused me. It is very fortunate that of all the windows in that building, it was his. and of the size of the castle that we see when the aeroplane comes over and he jumps out, that he should throw a guard off that precise top of that building in front of that particular window. Are we not expect it to be one of those gags where he falls past but he doesn't see him? <laughs> I, I thought he was going to fall and the circle was just going to ground his, his ankle and catch him. Yeah. But Snake Eyes like, that. Yeah, screw it. Kill him. Death. <laughs> I thought that was quite cool. I, can't, I quite like that. Page 14, I cannot for the life of me believe Cobra Command Guards fell for this. Yeah. Snake Eyes dressings in a corporate outfit and then goes, they went that way, gov! <laughs> and you're like, really? They, are these guys as dumb as stormtroopers? So, you know, I, I can't believe they fell for that at all. After... Scarlet gets away, Ninja the White gets out of the cellar that she locks him in, and he goes to a room where he summons Ninjas the Red, three of them. Are they normally just hanging upside down in a room in the dark like bats waiting to be summoned? They're like sleeper agents. Literally. Yeah. They're just hanging around doing nothing until somebody comes for it. What if you need a dump man? Uh, upside down. That's going all down the back. It's why they wear red robes and not white. No, I'm, I'm not having none of that. Uh, Leia Lois Earth has a nice Danny Balandi feel to it all the way through the issue. And I did like the ending, where Scarlet lands in front of the sword that Ninja the White throws at Snake Eyes, perfectly prepared to die for him. And then Snake Eyes catches it between his palms of his hands by just reaching yeah. round her. A move that will be duplicated by Buffy the Vampire Slayer. She totally does that in uh, the second season finale when Angel's about to stab her, doesn't she? Mm. And then she kicks his ass. Because Buffy is awesome. Um, I didn't really have a lot of page-by-page notes for it because it was all in the art. I thought it was a great issue. Mm. I really did enjoy it. I felt a little bit of at a loss about who some of these people were. And I'm quite glad we made the decision to read issue one. Because at least because of that, we knew Cobra Commander Scarlet and Snake Eyes, although I was a loss to who box from Logan's run was uh, and I didn't know who Ninja the White was maybe it was um, a cross franchise <laughs> story box yeah. from Logan's run comes along just for the hell of it yeah. so they can sell some more toys probably um, suffice to say they were the bad guys weren't they and I don't think I needed to know much more of that than box and Ninja the White were the bad guys that's all I needed to know well I don't know was Ninja the White a bad guy or did he just fancy the redhead um, well, he, he's got it in bondage for most of the... Well, you're right, maybe that's just what she likes. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't know. I presume him to be the bad guy. Yeah. That was that was my uh, presumption. The story itself is pretty straightforward. Scarlet was captured, Snake Eyes pops off to rescue her, but long before Buffy, Sydney, Bristol, or Xena, Scarlet doesn't actually need rescuing, which I thought was a lovely little touch. She gets out of this on her own. Yeah. And she would totally have got away on her own. She didn't need Snake Eyes to come and rescue her ass. Yeah. Because she got the funny little rocket jetpack thing with Hasbro stamped on it uh, on her own. She didn't need him. She, I like her. Mm. She's quite an interesting character. But I came away from the first issue thinking these two were the most interesting ones in it. Yeah. So there was something about them that was interesting. The art does a good job of carrying the story. 
and contextually I can see that's why this was such a remarkable issue in its time it pulls off a near silent story almost perfectly I really enjoyed it what did you think Michael? I enjoyed it but I was confused also I mean I I knew a little bit more about it than you did you seem to have Mm. but I was still a little bit what's going on here then? see there is a temptation to analyse that too much and say what's going on and who's that and what's that but at its heart this is pretty straightforward good girl gets captured by bad man bad man takes into castle good man comes to rescue her only to learn girl does not need rescuing because she's perfectly capable good guys escape bad man stands there shaking his fist going I'll get you next time gadget dumping on his hat yeah so ignore all of the stuff that you don't know yeah and just concentrate on alright that's the story I don't need to know anything more than he's a good guy she's a good guy he's a bad guy he's a bad guy he's a good he's a good Ebony's a good that's all I need to know mm. job done so yes I can see why this is a much lauded issue and uh, I did actually really enjoy reading it. I say reading. But the thing with silent issues like that, do you not think they take you longer to read? Because you're paying much more attention the to the art. art. Yeah. Because the art has to convey emotion and subtlety. Mm. And I think it was only 90% successful in that. Because I had to look at the page where Ninja the White is semi-seducing her. <laughs> and I was looking at it going, what exactly is going on here? Mm. Because she never spits in his face or anything. Bites his thumb. She just bites his thumb. So maybe he likes that. Maybe he does. You know. <laughs> maybe maybe she was going to bite his thumb off. I don't know. Maybe he only jumped away to check if any guards were coming anytime soon. That's entirely possible, <laughs> isn't it? The next suggestion came from Mr. Luke Giaconetti. A long-time Joe fan, Luke suggested a number of different adventures, some long-form, some single issues. For the record, Luke suggested issues 12 through 19, an early Snake Eyes story with Quinn and Dr. Venom. Number 46 through 50, The Battle of Springfield. Number 73 through 78, Cobra Civil War. 108 through 115, The Battle of the Benzheen, the most infamous Joe story ever. And he suggested issue number 2 and issue number 34. Looking at the suggestions, we felt a long-form story was perhaps not what we wanted here. If we revisit this property in the future, and we may very well, we'll look at a longer tale then. Given that we had decided to cover issue number one, I felt that covering issue two may be a bit redundant. We wanted issues that really gave us a flavour of what G.I. Joe was normally, rather than special stories. Kind of like how you don't show the Buffy episode, The Body, to someone who's never seen the show, as an example of what it is. It's a great episode but it's offbeat and not reflective of the show as a rule. To that end, I plumped for issue number 34, which came out in January the 8th, 1985, with an April cover date. The cover by Mike Zeck is a close-up through the canopy of the Sky Striker XP-14F of two characters, I will later learn, are Ace and Lady J, being fired upon by a Cobra Rattler. As it's a Mike Zek cover, it goes without saying that it's pretty damn good. Nobody in the 80s drew better muscular men with clenched jaws than Zek, and he lives up to that reputation here. The colour of the sky in the background lets the side down a bit. A powder blue may have been a bit more pleasing, but it's action-packed and interesting. Did you like it? I did, but I just like planes. 
I, I thought this was a great issue, like Shimon earlier, but I thought it was a great issue just because of the playing. It's it's Top Gun or Airwolf, isn't it? Oh yeah. Or Blue Thunder. That's what this issue is. Just instead of guy love, there's a girl to replace the other guy. Yeah, instead of being two guy co-pilots like Top Gun, not at all a gay pantheon. Of course not. No. And anyway, the little bit in this where they play volleyball. <laughs> Playing with the boys. <laughs> Shakedown was written by Larry Hammer. It was penciled by Rod Wiggum. Inks by Andy Mushinsky. He keeps showing up because I can't say his name. <laughs> Rick Parker lettered. George Russos coloured. Denny O'Neill edited. And Jim Shooter was the editor-in-chief. It's a highway to the danger zone as Ace and Lady J depart Maguire Air Force Base to test out the new additions to the Sky Striker, while simultaneously Wild Weasel and the Baroness leave Springfield Cobra Command to test fly the modified basic Rattlers. As the two fighter jets make their flights, the Rattler discovers the Sky Striker whilst flying in its blind spot over heavy traffic that can confuse the radar. Wild Weasel arms heat-seeking missiles and opens fire. Fortunately, Ace spots a radar beam bouncing off the hull, and although the onboard computer claimed no aircraft in the vicinity, he spots the Rattler and takes evasive action. Ace pops a sunburst, sorry, a chaff, which takes out the heat seekers, but one rocket gets through and destroys the Sky Striker's transmission antenna. Ace pulls the Sky Striker into a hard turn and blasts back with the Gatling gun. I should have said chain guns though, shouldn't I? But the chain guns down. But the Rattler has protection around the pilot. Being over the civilian territory puts Ace on the back foot, and the Baroness opens up with the tail gun, destroying Ace's canopy and smashing his visor. Ace has no damage to himself, but cannot see. He orders Lady J to take over the flying as he tries to prize his helmet free, ordering Lady J to not let the Rattler get behind them. Realising the flight path is now more erratic, Wild Weasel figures out that there is a backseat driver and pulls the Rattler into a vertical circle round and is in position behind the Sky Striker to blow it out of the sky. Ace manages to remove the helmet just as the Rattler opens fire, kicking in the afterburners. Wild Weasel puts the Rattler into a low-flight path over the houses, but Lady J filters the radar to focus only on moving objects and pursues the Rattler over the ocean. Free of civilian targets, Ace opens fire, but Weasel pulls the old slam-on-the-brakes manoeuvre. Ace turns the jet, putting the two combatants into full head-on attack, but this removes the Rattler's ability to use heat seekers. The Rattler fires missiles, but Ace pulls up, throwing the missiles off course due to the G-force. The Riddler... The Riddler? <laughs> the Rattler banks back towards land and over a junkyard where it evades the Sky Striker's missiles by firing its own missiles at the junkyard, causing the radar screen to lose the Rattler in the debris field. Both jets emerge from the debris and open fire, emptying their Gatling guns into each other, but with not enough weapons left to finish each other off, the two jets approach each other. Ace and Weasel salute and return to base. Both the Baroness and Lady J ask why they are leaving, but neither pilot answers. Nice beginning to the issue with Lady J and Ace boarding the Sky Striker and Wild Weasel and the Baroness boarding the Rattler, and both essentially talking about the same thing, that this is essentially a test flight to check out the improvements in both craft. Of course, if that's all that was happening, this would be a really boring issue, yeah. wouldn't it? All uh, systems are checking in fine. Yeah, this is flight for seems to be go for go go for launches. We're gonna go. Yeah, we're gonna test out the everything's going to go okay. Yeah, but it's good. Nice, it's turbo. We're going to get everything's okay. We're gonna land now. That's it. 
And uh, would you like chicken? He <laughs> flies through a drive-thru. Yeah. <laughs> I know I did like that. Your top two panels of page one are Ace and Lady J. Your bottom two panels are Wild Weasel and the Baroness. And that fluctuates as you go through the issue. You see one, the art differentiates the two scenes between the two of them perfectly. After page one, page two, the Joe's taking off and the bottom is Cobra. It's a two-page splash. No, that's it. Page. It is an excellent page, isn't it? It's mm. both the Sky Striker goes towards the left, the Rattler goes to the right. I have to confess, I don't know anything about artist Rod Wiggum, but his art in this issue is exceptionally well done with accurate depictions of aircraft and people. Yeah, he's good at planes. He is, he's exceptionally good at the hardware, isn't he? Mm. And for an issue that's largely devoted to the hardware, that's what you want. Yeah. yeah, that's what you needed. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. Uh, speaking of hardware, the Sky Striker is based upon the F-14 Tomcat and bears such a resemblance I'm surprised there wasn't a legal issue. Hammer does a really good job of explaining all the military tech in this story without ever making it the point of the story or making the audience feel lost. It all seems real. Mm. So much so that I didn't bother researching any of it. If the it was real, all there for you. Yeah, it was, it gave, if, the real, if it is real tech it seems well researched and if it isn't he mm. did a good enough job of convincing me that it was real yeah. so either way it did its job and I felt I didn't need to nitpick or critique it somebody who actually has a military background may have had some problems with this but for me it all seemed plausible enough mm. there was never a moment where I was like wait a minute that doesn't sound right was that it all mm. sounded legitimate so I bought into it the only real issue I had with the story is the Cobra Rattler flying so close to the interstate and heavily populated areas. And um, the police or the military yeah, getting involved. Yeah, no one getting involved. I presume Cobra is so confident they don't feel the need for secrecy. But flying a heavily armed combat aircraft down a busy motorway seemed incredibly reckless to me. Surely somebody was going to notice that. Like all the cars underneath. Well, no, just, I mean, look at it. It's armed to the teeth. Yeah. Isn't it? And it's flying, what, nine, ten feet above the ground. Mm. Surely some of the people in the car are going to go, what the? Well, the other thing is, if, if, um, Cobra and G.I. Joe's bump into each other so early on, mm. are they not going to realise that their bases are next door to each other? Um, maybe they know. <laughs> See, this is the thing. Of, of the, it's a cold they live on war Cobra Island. Yeah, they have Cobra Castle. It's like, and they knew where that was. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe it is like a cold war. Maybe it's not. We can't go on all that offensive. There's I don't a know. deterrence between the two. Yeah, I, I, I have no idea. I did like that Cobra Rattler flies low enough to chop the top of trees off. Yeah. So there's a part of me that's like, how many windows got blown out because of this? <laughs> Because it's just skimming across the top of um, the trees. Yeah, the, the Cobra window insurance clears out. <laughs> Cobra have window insurance, yeah. do they? Auto Cobra repair, auto Cobra replace. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> uh, after the opening, the art then takes the approach of having a page devoted to the Joes and a page devoted to Cobra. This gives us a chance to see both fighters are of equal ability and also juxtaposes the similarities and differences between Wild Weasel and Ace. Essentially, they're testing out the same aircraft doing the same things, aren't they? Yeah. Implying that they're both quite evenly matched. I did think there was a huge coincidence at the heart of the story that both the Cobra Rattler and the Sky Striker would happen to be on a test flight at the same time. 
that both should happen to have experienced pilots at the cyclic and female co-pilots and that the Rattler and the Sky Striker would end up in exactly the same flight path mm. seemed like a little bit of a stretch. But, you know, it led to a pretty good story. So let it go. Yeah, it'd be a bit boring if, yeah, we're checking out systems so of go. We're just checking out systems of go. Preparing to land. Wait, uh, is, is, is that, that a bird control tower? Is that a bird control tower? Oh, no, it seems to be a Cobra Rattler. Oh, well, we won't engage. Do not engage. Okay, come on home. <laughs> End of issue. Yeah. No, you're right. That wouldn't be very interesting. So, no, okay. Uh, Weasel ends up in Ace's blind spot over a busy intersection and is about to blow it out of the sky. Cobra are depicted as very ruthless yeah. in this issue, which I like. They're not, you know, string straw men bad guys. Mm. They're actually pretty effective. Ace relying on instinct and experience and not just the computer is a story trope we've seen numerous times in this kind of story. But it's a potent theme, man versus technology. Always worth exploring. Um, both jet pilot, both jet fighters get the crap blown out of them early on. Yeah, there's a part of me that was wondering how the hell these were still flying after page thirteen. But you know, I, they've, they've certainly passed the test. Yeah, it's well, it's well armoured. Yeah. What I'm saying. Uh, the aerial combat kicks off on page seven. Again, as with most comics of this era, the colouring is occasionally garish, but the art is exciting and very dynamic capturing the action well. As we mentioned, Wiggum is exceptionally good at the hardware, and given that 90% of this book is shots of aeroplanes, yeah. banking and swooping and, and all of that stuff, he was the right man for the job. Wild Weasel's line on page 9 is quite polite. Mm. Ace manages to turn Weasel's sneak attack around and fires his weapons at the Cobra Rattler. He shoots the hell out of the cockpit of the Rattler. I mean, the art makes it look like he's actually shot it off. Yeah. But it turns out that it was it was well armoured. And uh, the Baroness asks if Weasel is okay, and he simply re- replies, Quite alright, thank you. <laughs> and it was like, let's stiff up a little of him, <laughs> I thought. I actually thought that line was hysterical. Yeah. In its understatement. I'm quite fine. How are you? <laughs> what a lovely day for a flight. You just had the crap blown out of you. Spotted oh. during your flight. Yes, but the, the, the Rattler is encased in a titanium steel armoured bathtub. <laughs> Nothing to worry about. <laughs> it's just a flesh wound. <laughs> A mere wound. (laughs) Uh, What makes this visually interesting is that the dogfight takes place over a populated area, a standard US picket fence community. Yet none of the residents seem bothered or scared that these two heavily armed jets are fighting overhead. This was interesting, um, mainly because whenever films or TV depict this kind of dogfight, it's almost always over the sea or the desert. I know in Erwolf, simply because I used to like Erwolf, they weren't allowed to fly the chopper over densely populated areas with its armament on display, even though it was fake armament on a fake military helicopter. And I presume the same applied to other shows of its ilk, like Blue Thunder. The comic has no such limitations. It did emphasise one of the problems I had with the comic. I never got exactly what Cobra wanted. Were they domestic terrorists? Are they foreign terrorists? What do they want? Do they have factions in other countries? Are the G.I. Joes in other countries fighting Cobra? Do we have a G.I. Joe equivalent? What what did they want? Um, Some men. (laughs) (laughs) Just want to see the world. No, but terrorists normally want something. 
um, because one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter so what exactly did Cobra want to rule the world with an iron fist of tyranny is that what they wanted they essentially were Doctor <laughs> Doom's Latverian Air Force we've already got a box from Logan's run it might as well be Doctor Doom <laughs> Doctor Doom's Latverian Air Force that was the I mean I presume that will get explained yeah at some point what exactly it is Cobra are fighting for mm. but you know whatever I was particularly impressed with the action in the middle of the comic. Ace is blinded when his visor is cracked and needs to remove his helmet. Wild Weasel spots the difference in flying as Lady J takes the stick, which I thought was a really lovely touch that he spotted the flying difference. Yeah. And he presses his advantage when he spots it. So he's not letting up. I like, again, I like that. Like when Pace Pot Pete attacked Spider-Man. It yeah. was purely because he had the upper hand and he wasn't letting it go. Because he does actually say in the issue somewhere, doesn't he? In in uh, to a combat, the winner is normally the guy who spots the other guy first. Yeah. So essentially, he's pressing his advantage on that. I liked it. I thought that was really good. Uh, whilst the populated backdrop's visually interesting, it does pose a few problems. One, Weasel opens fire on the Sky Striker with quite a barrage, some of which has to miss. Now, we're not simply flying over a populated area. We are flying close enough to clip TV antenna and washing lines. And there are people having barbecues in the back garden. There are presumably blown-out windows. How the hell did G.I. Joe spin this as a positive? You know, when they're they're on the news explaining what happened. Yeah. Did G.I. Joe have a spin doctor? Uh, His job it is to to explain that. Actually, this was just a testing ground that we uh, we were testing new jets. It was all practice. You had nothing to worry about. You were actors. (laughs) We were filming a film. (laughs) I don't buy that. I don't don't know that 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 would work, to be honest. To be fair, Ace never opens fire in a populated area. Yeah. Does he? He does, however, fire his turbos (laughs) over a busy street. So some people presumably ended up with quite a sunburn. (laughs) (laughs) Alright, okay. Because he he causes cars to crash. Yeah, yeah. So he's he's close enough that he's blowing the crap out of the street. Well, they're not over a busy area. They're in a busy area. They're in a heavily populated area. This is... This is, um... Bedford Falls, isn't it? If you're on the second floor the floor of a building, you're above the planes. Yeah, essentially, <laughs> at this point. <laughs> when we covered Marvel's Battlestar Galactica comic, when we did No More Heroes season or No More Heroes anymore, whatever the hell I called it, <laughs> I still don't remember, I mocked the breaking flaps gag. Yeah. Yet Wild Weasel uses it, and it works against Ace. Yeah. So maybe it's not quite as ridiculous as I made well, it out to be. What I liked was, ah, oh, you'll be fine, Lady Jade. As long as he doesn't do anything, the, the experienced pilots won't be able to... <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. then the weasel goes, you know what, I'll do something that only experienced pilots can do. <laughs> yeah, that, that was comical. <laughs> but in a good way. Yeah. I was never laughing at it. Um, there's an excellent bit where Ace weighs the odds. The two combatants approach each other in head-to-head duel. Ace must weigh the lesser of two evils. If he keeps on the head-to-head trajectory, Weasel can only use radar-directed weapons, but if they turn off course, Weasel can use both radar-directed and heat-seeking missiles, so elects to stay head-on, because that way he's only facing one of his two weaponry options. Yeah. 50-50 chance of getting blown out of the sky? Seems fair enough to me. The here, page 14, Cobra rattle flies through somebody's back garden. Um, the final confrontation in the last couple of pages is well realised. 
Ace points out early in the issue, as I've already mentioned, aerial combat is won by whoever sees the other guy first. Um, both he and Weasel take that advantage at various different points in the story and cloud the radar or otherwise impervisibility to survive the fight. This leads to both men going all out for the final battle that neither man wins when their guns come up empty. They fly close enough to each other to salute. I loved this ending, where the co-pilots are demanding to know why they are leaving, why the pilots say nothing. We're left with a feeling of we have met the enemy and they are us, with both men being equally capable and mutually respectful of each other, but also thinking of whatever the outcome is going to be the next time they meet. I liked that they didn't feel the need to put this into words, and it ends the story on a very sombre note. Mm. Which uh, I thought was exceptionally good. Yeah, I'll end into um, I thought this was an excellent issue. Hmm. Really, really good issue. Good pick from Mr. Giaconetta. I'm a sucker from dog fights, be they in space or in the atmosphere. And this was a fine example of kind of swirling aerial dog fights seen in Top Gun and Airwolf and Blue Thunder and any number of World War II dambuster type movies. Again, knowing nothing about the characters was not a hindrance, with Hammer giving us everything we need to know in the comic itself. And like David's pick, this was a smaller issue, concentrating on only four people. The Urtwer combat stuff is nicely handled and generates a fur bit of excitement, so kudos to the artist and writer for that. And again, Hammer manages to sneak in some characterisation, with Ace and Weasel respecting each other at the end of the story. The finale, where the two pilots don't tell their co-pilots why they are heading home, was a wonderful touch, signifying a moment of respect between the two enemies that transcended words. I could hear the roar of the jet engines and the rattle of the Gatling guns and a pulse-pounding synth soundtrack as I read along. What did you think, Michael? I really liked it. I like planes, so... Well, yeah. It's, it's, it's a plus, you know. It is a plus. It's actually like about planes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was good. It was excellent on that one, wasn't it? Yeah. It was, it was very... I almost... I was either hearing... Or I was in... Great. As they were flying for the danger as were, zone. Yeah, as we were going through the danger zone. It was an absolutely fantastic couple of issues. So, all told, what do you think of G.I. Joe? Entertaining. It was good, wasn't it? Yeah. It was. The, there was a part of it that was very much what I thought it was going to be. Some slight military jingoism mm. against a, an unknown terrorist faction of indeterminate country of origin advertising toys. Yeah. I was pleasantly surprised to find that there was more to it than that. I still wouldn't want to watch the movies, though. I've seen the first movie. The recent ones? Yeah. The it was no, I saw the Christopher Eccleston one. It's crap. Fair it's enough. nowhere near as good as those comics. Yeah. The only redeeming feature of the first movie, Rachel Nichols is in it. Okay. That's the only redeeming feature of the first film. <laughs> um, as a whole, I, I, there's a part of me that thinks if I'd have been reading that in the mid-80s, I'd have been reading it. Yeah. I don't know if it ever came over here. I don't know if we ever got the G.I. Joe comic. I know, but I do wonder if that comic ever got distributed over here for that reason. There was no toys for it to be plugging. Yeah. So, I I don't remember. Certainly, I was intrigued to actually read some more of it. Mm. But let's add that to the list of things that I want to read. (laughs) I was pleasantly surprised by it. Mm. And I greatly enjoyed it. And it has led that we will, in a couple of weeks, be doing something else that we know nothing about that has a huge fan following and is still being published in comics today, similar to G.I. Joe. But we're not going to tell them about that yet. No. No, but we are going to tell them that next week, 
another unabashed love letter to Darwin Cook. Yeah. As we publish his, as we publish, mm-hmm. as we cover his adaptation of Parker, the Hunted, by the, the late Hunter. the Hunter, sorry, by the late Donald Westlake, aka Richard Stark. Yeah. But anyway, that'll give you a chance to go and find a copy and immerse yourself in crime noir comics at the finest, because it is, I thought, one of the best comics I read last year, but no. Mm. So. We've not buried the lead, though. Next week's going to be a love letter. Yes. So Just like the last time. Just like the last time we covered something by Darwin Cook. In absolute format. In absolute format. Which we are covering it in the Martini edition. Which is an absolute by any other name. Oh, yeah. But anyway, that's next week. We don't want to shoot the load too soon, do we? <laughs> we already have. Oh, yeah, okay. I think we already have. So next week's Parker the Hunted. And then the Hunter. week after... The Hunter, <laughs> and then the week after that, another long-standing property that everybody else loves that we know bugger all about. Hope you'll join us. Thank you to David and Luke for the recommendations. Both were very good. Enjoyed that. Enjoyed them immensely. We'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us. Bye-bye. infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us, as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream, as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them, and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. Join in the fun. We have a website where you can see the covers of the comics we've covered at www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics.